Jerusalem army rising. The church is the breathing grounds for raising godly men and women who are willing to apply kingdom principles and values to bring transformation to their respective societies. We need to have a national focus. We don't have to lose this ambition or else we work against the Great Commission. They are equipped in righteousness. Unless our righteousness exceeds those who just know ABC and surprise others to do, but they don't do. Unless we see that. We pray for God to raise right ministers in our nations. We pray for God to raise right task collectors. We pray for God to raise right security agents. They are bold and fearless. Standing your ground when the battle has been heated to such an extent that everyone is running away. And we don't quit. For we know no defeat. The agenda to possess the nations. Welcome to an equipping center of the word and prayer on Pentecost hour. Stay tuned in. This morning, uh, I'm continuing the series. The topic given to me for the year, which I shared with the heads in November. I've said to people that in November it was 16 pages. When we got to the Ministers and Wives Conference in January, it had come to about 22. And now it's 46. Yeah, so why is it 46? We pack it with the heads. We try to unpack it a bit with the Ministers and Wives. But when we come here, we try to ask it, we decode everything so that members will understand. So the message I shared it within 45 minutes it's now 6 weeks Uh so I'm on part 2 of the topic righteousness the authority of the kingdom righteousness the authority of the kingdom I must say that so far per the discussions we had in part 1 which I started with Tamale Pia Dobrisi I think last week or 2 We've defined righteousness as behavior that is morally justified or right before God. Such behavior, we said, is characterized by accepted standards of morality, justice, virtue, and uprightness. So anything we do that aligns with what God has prescribed in his word with regards to morality, justice, and doing things right, then in God's judgment we've acted rightly. And then we said that these things manifest themselves in acts, words, deeds, and attitude. The way we talk, the way we respond to issues, how we relate to our, with our colleagues, determine whether we are acting right or not. And we said that in this church, Jesus said, I'll build my church. This church, this new kingdom that God has called us into, there is a seal, there is a mark. And the Bible says that the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of the kingdom. That is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. 
we learned from that scripture that the scepter of righteousness is the scepter of the kingdom. That's where he says that you love righteousness and hated evil, and therefore God your God has anointed you with oil of gladness. So we attempted to explain what scepter is, and we said it's a ceremonial symbol or an emblem which has some sort of a cap on it. Maybe it can be a staff, but what is on it signifies the authorities, the sovereignty, and what the person stands for. So in our discussion, we learned that in Ghana, especially in most clans and uh, various groups or ethnic groupings, the, the staff of the chief is always carried by the linguist. And what differentiates one staff from the other is what is on it. So they will have the staff all right, but what is on it tells the authority or what the people stand for. Some have crow, eagle, lion, tiger, snake, and what have you just to let people know what they stand for. Then we learned that when we come to Ghana, our symbol, our coat of arms, is written on it, freedom and justice. It means that our forebears established this, this nation with that, and therefore they want generations that will come after them to rule, to lead, to organize to do their things under this oath or this emblem or this coat of arm. That is freedom and justice. So the president has it on his vehicle. Police officers have them on their forehead or whatever they do. And if you go to the parliament too, we said the speaker of parliament, before he comes, the marshal carries something. It's a staff. And it's so well designed and with a lot of things moving around it, right from the crown to the very tip or end, are a lot of designs, the Dinkra symbols, that have been used to describe what we stand for. And in it, the sovereignty of God is there, the acceptance of women in leadership is there, our freedom is there, how we want to rule and govern ourselves is there. And it signifies that we have given our authority to the Speaker of Parliament, who is the chief linguist, as it were, to moderate affairs of the, the nation. So we, we established that the scepter stands for something. Every community, every society, every clan, and even our nation has a scepter. And what caps it tells of what the people stand for. And we established that in this kingdom, Bible says in Romans 14, 17 that the kingdom of God is not a matter of meat and drink, but righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. And then Hebrews 1, 8 also has established that the scepter of the kingdom is the scepter of righteousness. Then we went to Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 12 where we said that it is an abomination before God for kings to do evil. Why? Because the throne on which they sit is established by righteousness. The NIV will say, kings detest wrongdoing because their throne has been established through righteousness. It means that when you sit on that throne, you dare not and you cannot. And you can't even attempt to do 
evil because the throne on which you sit is established in righteousness or through righteousness. So we ended by uh, establishing the fact that when the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 14 that we should put on the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness is our righteous acts. And I said that it signifies our moral character. Moral character which serves as the believer's defense in a way that it protects our hearts from evil. So if you want to be right, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put it and guard your heart from evil. And I said that it's our response to evil. When we're able to respond rightly to evil that comes to us, if you don't repay evil for evil, then we are being righteous. Now we want to continue with the part two, which I've entitled, The Righteousness of God as it relates to the believer's salvation. Part one was definition and also to let us know that in this kingdom, you can't be evil and be part of it. Because whatever we do here has been established through righteousness. So when we come, we are expected to follow in that way. So righteousness of God as it relates to the believer's salvation. Before we can appreciate the righteousness of God and how God saved us and the way he has cleansed us and how he wants us to live our lives, it's important to appreciate where we were and how depraved humanity was. So humanity's depravity and departure from righteousness. It means that we're created in a particular setting under particular conditions and we're expected to live our lives in a particular way, but we deviated. If you examine Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, we'll not have time to read all. Romans chapter 1, and you move to verse 18 to 32, we'll move, we examine Romans 1, 18 to 32, to glean a characterization of the depravity of humanity as a departure from righteousness, both in the hearts and outward expression. You read Romans 1, 8 to 32, it tells you how wicked and how bad man is or was. Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, details the nature of the human heart without redemption before coming to the saving knowledge of Christ, how we were and how we used to live our lives. Then, after that, we'll talk about justification, the positional instantaneous righteousness, God picking us and putting us somewhere, and then functional or progressive righteousness. So before Jesus came, we were very bad, we were very evil. I've been telling people, I use this simple scenario, who told children that when your mommy's breast milk is not coming, you should, should bite her. You never lie when you were a kid. You never opened the mirror, took some scoops and then covered it and shook it as if nothing had happened. You never went to steal some soup and pour water in it just to let it come to its normal state. We were born evil. So our hearts and everything before coming to the saving knowledge of Christ, we were evil. So we read Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to 32. 
and I was able to identify about 13 issues that had to negate us when we stand before God. One, humanity has become godless and wicked, which we have to admit. Without Christ, humanity is godless and wicked. Humanity suppresses the truth by wickedness. If you're in a society and want to live right, say the truth, we, you, you are always suppressed. And also it tells us that God has revealed his invincible qualities, that is his eternal power and divine nature to humanity through the things he has created. But we have chosen not to glorify God, but rather worship those things that God created. So instead of appreciating God and following the creator, we prefer following the creation. The thinking of humanity has become futile and their foolish heart is darkened. That's what Romans 1.21 tells us. It says that although humanity claims to be wise, they became fools in the sight of God. And our attempt to prove ourselves to be wise when God measures us our, our wisdom is nothing to write home about. Humanity has exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things, that is idols. God has therefore given humanity over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Then humanity exchanged the truth for a lie and worshiped created things rather than the creator. God gave humanity over to shameful lust. And listen to this. This shameful lust, that sexual impurity took the form of homosexuality right from the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. Women inflamed with lust for one another and men inflamed with lust for men. In the first or part one, I said that natural sense is, is like God saying man should marry woman. So when we come to a point where we want to project and say that men can marry men, where even dogs don't do that, then you know how depraved we've become. Humanity along the line of sexual impurity receives in themselves due penalty, yet continue in it. Those who indulge in homosexuality and all that, we are told they have a lot of messes around them, lots of diseases and all that. But because their minds have been darkened by the evil one, they see nothing wrong about it and they continue in them. We read that God punished Sodom and Gomorrah because of these things. Yet, uh, though the fear that God will punish us is there, but we, we still continue to do daring God to punish us if he, want, if he would. But I said that God will never apologize to anybody. Mark this. When you read the scriptures and God punished any evil, God will not spare you because he owes nobody an apology. So if Adam and Eve sin and God sucked them from his presence, if we sin, he also suck us. If Sodom and Gomorrah, the people there indulge in homosexuality and God rain, brings storm and fire on them to bend them. And today we do the same. God should punish us. All the evil, if, if Achan stole and God punished him and his whole family, and today we still, and God doesn't punish us, it means God has to go to right from Genesis and start apologizing to all the people he punished. But please, God is sovereign. And owes nobody an apology. Therefore, you don't go back to apologize to anybody. And therefore, because it's just, you punish us too. That's all. 
the, the thing will continue. If he sin, he will punish. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive. But so far as we continue to live in sin, God will punish us. Then, let me jump to my point 12. Humanity has become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. Humanity is full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. Humanity invents ways of doing evil. People plan to, to create a scene that will let people fall. Uh, the, 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 the easiest explanation that I used to explain this is that people like this one, as people who study read about science, went deep into their recesses and thought about things and brought this microphone. We didn't have these things until our unfriendly and unwelcome COVID-19 came. And people had to study how we're applying the, the sanitizers and came up with it. This is an invention. But if you read Romans chapter 1, verse 29 to 31, you come to a point where it said that in our days, humanity invents ways of doing evil. People go into conclave. They form caucuses. And the idea is when we come out, this is what we'll do. If I have nothing at all, look at what is happening in our parliament. Whether it is good or bad, NDC will stand their grounds. They have chief whips. MPP will have their chief whips. What are, what are they doing? They go, they go into caucuses, and this is what they are going to do. If you don't get this, we'll fight. They plan evil. Both sides. So this is what is in the heart of humanity. They go into their recesses and come out with evil. Therefore, God will definitely punish those who walk in that state. Therefore, because God is a loving God, he doesn't or he didn't want us to go that way. You can put uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to the end by this one. You read Romans chapter 1. 18 to 32, and we, don't, we wouldn't have time to read Ephesians chapter 2. So you bring that one to along this line. Let me take a few verses from Ephesians chapter 2. The very first verse is, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you, were, you once walked, following the course of this evil, following the prince of the power of the air, that and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you read that along with Romans chapter 1, you know how wicked, how bad, how depraved, and the tree is what I like. Nipa say, I was saved. Now I pronounce But thank God, Jesus came into the scene. So Jesus Christ, our righteousness and sanctification. Let me state that the reason Jesus came was primarily to make it possible for humanity to be restored to the righteousness of God. God is a righteous God. Because he's a just God, I'll come to that at the tail end. Because he's a just God, he hates sin and therefore punishes sin. But there's something inherent in him which is merciful and therefore seeks after the lost. He didn't want us to go the way we were going. So Jesus had to come into the scene. In doing that, Jesus came to destroy 
the works of Satan. That is sin. The curses and the fear of death due to God's wrath on unrighteous people. So God made Jesus come into the sin to break the yoke of Satan on us and free us. So God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we can become the righteousness of God in Christ. Without Christ, we are nobodies. Without Christ, we have no righteousness in ourselves. So essentially, the finished work of Christ, which has been imputed with the righteousness of Christ on us, makes us righteous. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior and allow yourself to be baptized, after that, you are saved. Even if you don't get to the point of baptism and you die, you are saved. Let's look at some scripture readings. Romans chapter 8. We are talking about righteousness and sanctification being something Jesus has done for us or brought to us. Romans 8. Verse 1 to 14. If you really want to understand your salvation, take time to read the whole book of Romans from chapter 1 to the end. So here we are at chapter 8, verse 1 to 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in his flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So, what Paul is trying to say here is that before Jesus came, because of sin, there was a law. There were some do's and don'ts. And before you come here, if you read Romans chapter 7, Paul will tell you that he's struggling because there are two laws in him. There is a part in him who says do the right thing and another part in him who says don't do it. And I've said to people that it is easier to sin than to live right. True or false? It is easier because the community, the environment, the upbringing and everything promotes being evil, sinning, than living right. And Paul is telling us that because we couldn't do that, Jesus came in a form of human flesh to bear that, to be able to break that yoke so that when we come to accept him through that, there will be an exchange of power. He moves us from under the authority of Satan and brings us to another point. And he says that, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because without Christ, under old Adam, we were condemned to sin or to death because we were sinful. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 and 14 reads, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is Everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Romans 6.23, 
will tell us that the wages of sin is death. If it had ended there, then there would be no hope. So the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Galatians is telling us is that God, because he's a just God, he had to punish sin. He punished Adam and Eve. He punished Cain. He brought a flood during Noah's time. And then he also rained brainstorm fire to burn the people in Sodom and God. God continued to punish sin. In order to atone for that and stop punishing people, he had to bring Jesus in. Because the Bible says, curse is everyone who hang on the tree. So thank God on that Friday night, Jesus offered himself up to be slaughtered, to be killed for us. And after that, because of that, God is settled in the spirit that he has dealt with sin. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. He said, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Let me take it again. And you, and I, who were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. So before Jesus came into the scene, what we enjoyed doing was to do evil. Exchanging women should be normal. Drinking over the weekend and then following through to Sunday night should be normal. Repaying people with evil should be normal. If somebody stole something, going to the village to catch the person for the person to die is normal. If there is a fight on the streets and you don't take it over as your own fight and fight for people and disgrace yourself in public, it is normal. Or it was normal. So these were the things we were doing. But God made us alive together with Christ. When Jesus died and he resurrected, the Bible says that we were buried with him and we were resurrected with him through the baptism. And he made us alive. We haven't forgotten all our trespasses. So once you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, the old book has been closed. A new chapter has been opened. That is a fact. So you can't say that, maybe I'm a cook with you. Oh, it's a shame. If you're a Christian, you're here and you are unforgiving, it's a shame. If you are somebody who is always bitter, it's a shame. Then you are not with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. That's not alone. By canceling the records of death that stood against us. So in the Old Testament, if you do this, I'll do that to you. If you do this, I'll do that to you. But thank God when Jesus came to die on the tree, God accepted that sacrifice and then canceled all the debts. He paid the debt. He did not owe. I owe that debt. I do not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Now I can sing a brand new song. Amen. 
something because of our sins? I. Because God decreed and declared in the Garden of Eden that if they did this, this was what was going to happen. And they really did that, and God also acted. And we come to Genesis chapter 3, he listed the curses. So it was following us. But thank God Jesus came to pay that debt we couldn't pay. And therefore God has set us free. And we are saying amazing grace for Jesus paid the debt that he did not owe. So Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Listen to this carefully. 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so uh, I need some three gentlemen please join me up here for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so this man represents we the sinners you the righteous people you are not part uh, so, we, the sinners, we are here. And that is God. But you can't be God, though. It's just for seconds. You can never be a sinner forever. And then you want me to say you are Jesus. Okay, fa- you are Jesus. So, what Second Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says? For our sake, because of we, the sinners, God made him who knew no sin. Jesus came clean. To be medicine so that in him, because Jesus is standing between us and God, when we accept him, because God made him sin for us, in him, we will become God's righteousness. Hello? Please, you can sit down. I'll I'll explain here. Now, God is a righteous God. He's up there. We don't know how to live right. We don't know how things are in heaven. But in the Lord's prayer, he said that when you pray, say, our Father who art in heaven, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What prayer were we saying when we say that? It means how God is, we want to experience on earth. The holiness we want to experience on earth. His forgiving spirit we want to experience, experience it on earth. And Bible is saying that before we could do that, God had to do some exchange. He had to bring Jesus to bear our sin. So Jesus carried all our sins onto the cross and he didn't descend with it again. When he got there, God accepted it. So when we become Christians, we become the righteousness of God. It's not a righteousness of God. So now God is up there. And you and I are on earth. And we are supposed to represent God's righteousness. So what do I mean by saying we have become God's righteous? It simply means that when God looks at us, he should see Jesus through us. It's unfortunate I made them sit down early. When God looks at us, God was here, Jesus is here, and the dark, sinful people are here. Because Jesus has carried our sins. God sees us through Christ. And because he's seen us through Christ, he dare not see any evil in us. We have become there. It's not a righteousness. God's character. So, 
It means that when God looks at Kumilabi, when God looks at Apostle Ben Ali, when God looks at Antibi, he wants to see through Christ's finished work being established in us and therefore we living holy and righteous life, period. So that is the righteousness of God. Therefore, 1 John 3, 8 tells us something. 1 John 3, 8. Let me take it from the amplifier. It's, it's open it up. 1 John 3, 8, it says that, you see, we have established that through Christ, we have become the righteousness of God. The one who practices sin, this is talking to Christians, people who had believed at downtown of Fancourt, PRWC, at 8.15 a.m. on 13 February 2022. The one who practices sin, that is separating himself from God and offending him by acts of disobedience, indifference, or rebellion. You see? What amplifies it? The one who practices sin. And he's trying to explain practices sin. That is separating himself from God and offending him by acts of disobedience, indifference, and rebellion. It's of the devil. So after all that Jesus has done, if you continue to sin, it means you are separating yourself from God. And by separating yourself from God, you are offending God. You are offending God. And how are you offending God? By acts of disobedience. Go read the Romans chapter 1 verse 18 to 32. I've said to people, read it, type it, and paste it by your wall and start canceling it. If you don't get zero there, you are, you are in trouble. Just list it and cancel it. Then you flip to Ephesians chapter 2 and you tell you where. So if you read Ephesians chapter 2 and they say you who were, and those times you are supposed to be past our present, you are in trouble. Hello? Uh-huh. So if you sin, you are offending God. You are separating yourself from God. And how do you separate yourself from God? By acts of disobedience, indifference, or rebellion. You used to walk this way. You become a Christian. You are telling, this is the way we should go. Mm-hmm. You want to be a Christian at the same time you are one leg, you want it to be outside. You are offending God. So the one who practices sin is of the devil. That's why you are offending God. After paying the price, going through that death, painful, vicarious death, if you continue to sin, God, the first John is saying you have become a son or a child of the devil. His inner character and moral values from him, not God. It means all that you will be doing, you will be receiving it from the devil, not God. For the devil has sinned and violated God's law from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Hallelujah. Therefore, Jesus came to restore our righteousness through justification and sanctification. So as I said, Paul's discourse in the book of Romans talks about man's depravity 
and God's mitigating the penalty thereof by bestowing on us or imputing on us his righteousness. If you read Romans chapter 3, it talks about God's righteousness, verse 1 to 8. And then verse 9 to 20 talks about the bad state of humanity. Then you get to verse 20 to tell, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But thank God, when you get to the verse 21, it says that by now, the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophet bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So once you believe, God sees you as a righteous person. Hallelujah. Our sins were, our sin was carried by God's innocent son upon the cross. So justification and sanctification here represent the two dimensions of God's righteousness. That is God imputing his righteousness on us, setting us free, leaving his presence, putting on another garment, which is righteousness, on us to go and show forth to the world. So God imputes his righteousness on us, and he releases us into the system to let people see what he has done for us by way of impacting the society. So God forgives us, he gives us his new, his strength or his righteousness, and then releases us into the system to go and show forth what he has done for us. A theologian by name Van Ad argues that with this, Paul's notion about the righteousness of God in relation to the condition of mankind as described in Romans 1, it's not only accentuated God's saving at that vertical dimension, but also God's intervention on behalf of the poor and the wicked on the land. So God calls you and saves you, forgives you, justifies you. Before you, you leave his presence, you leave his presence as a righteous person. So as you go back into the system, he expects you to exhibit same, to let people know what God has done for you by way of saving you. So let me pause. Since you became a Christian, how impactful has your life been on your community, your family, even in your marriage, the upbringing of your children, at your church place? So Van Ad argues that what has been referred to as imputed righteousness is God's saving act. And imparted righteousness is manifesting what God has done for you in your community and in the society. If you have time to read from Exodus chapter 22 verse 21 to 24. Exodus 22, 21 to 24. It talks about the revelation of God's righteousness. And what it ought to do in our lives. Even as we have received the vertical dimension of God's righteousness by forgiving us and imputing his righteousness on us, our position before him has changed. And once your position before God has changed, it behoves on you to be functional. You can't be mute in the system. 
You can't be dead in the system. Let the people feel that there is a Christian, there is a righteous person in the community. If you just come to church, dance, sing about his holiness, receive messages from him, and go the same without affecting the society, then we have done nothing. Dearly beloved in the Lord, this morning, what I received from the Lord, which I'm sharing with you, is that the righteousness is the authority of the kingdom. And once you have become part of God's kingdom, let's not let the death of Jesus on the cross go waste. Once he has saved us and released us into the system, he expects us to reflect his character. Let me conclude by saying that, therefore, it is worth noting that the righteousness of God frowns on the sinful life of the sinner. God does not condone sin. God does not condone sin. So I've been pressing this bottom of late. Ladies and gentlemen, not let's, do not let us deceive ourselves that there are no virgins in the church. There are still virgins in the church. There are still virgins in the church. The church is not so corrupt as you think. Hello. It's not all of us who take bribe. So don't take bribe. It's not all of us who cross the red light. So don't cross the red light. Be a disciplined Christian in the society. Don't assume Ghana is corrupt. Everybody is doing anything they want. So you also follow suit. No. You have been saved. You have been taken away from them and transformed into another community. Let me end by reading Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13. It says that, and you who were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all as all they've been cancelled. When we go back, we don't go with them. Hello? So you go to a court, there is a case against you, the judge sits in chair, the prosecutor come, they discuss the issues, and they said that now you have been set free. What the family members do is they'll pour some powder on you to signify that even though you came accused, you were leaving the auditorium free. Let us go and exhibit virtues of Christ. The one who has saved us wants to use us to affect our community. What actions are you going to take from tomorrow? What things are you going to stop doing? And what are you going to start doing? Dearly beloved in the Lord, Jesus has finished his work on the cross. He's sitting up there waiting for us to come and give account for what he has done for us. The salvation of our community, the salvation of our society, the salvation of our nation is in our hands. Once he has saved us, let us leave no stone unturned until we save first our family. Second, our community. Third, our society. Then if you're able to do that, then our 70% who we say are Christians will have the necessary impact on our community. Then we can be bold and say, Ghana is a Christian nation. But for now, we have the numbers. But it's not reflecting. May the good Lord himself have mercy on us. Amen. 
Thanks for listening to today's word. Subscribe to our social media handles for life-transforming messages.